Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I just took some medication that will numb my throat, so if I start slurring at any point, I apologize. <laughs> I've been battling a cold, or really a cough, a persistent cough for the last two weeks, and it did start to turn around today, so I feel confident that I'll be able to uh, make it through the, the sermon today, but it is a, a bittersweet Sunday today, isn't it? It's our last week here at, at, uh, at Holy Trinity, and, and uh, my first memories of Mount Pleasant is going through, walking through those doors, preaching my first sermon here, and just being greeted with so much warmth, community, and love. It was unique. It really was. And I know this place holds so much more for a lot of you that's been coming here Sunday after Sunday. And I do just want to say that we want to make room for both sorrow and joy. They can both coexist in the same space and acknowledge, of course, that our God is one who can hold all those, both sorrow and joy. And so I do want to acknowledge that as being a, a real bittersweet thing um, that I know our church is, is going through today and in the Sundays to come. Uh, but for today, let me uh, pray once again and ask the Holy Spirit to just guide me through this message. Um, Holy Spirit, we want to thank you and welcome you. We know you're already here, but we just want to say that you're so welcome and you're, you're most wanted, Lord, in our hearts. You're most wanted, Lord, in our, in our gathering. You're most wanted, Lord, here in Mount Pleasant. And I just ask, Lord, that you give me the grace to be your vessel this afternoon, knowing full well, God, it is you who changes, shapes, and forms the hearts and lives of the people that are here. Holy Spirit, use me, and through me, may the breath, Lord, of, of God speak uh, to the hearts and minds of the people as we all come under your word. I'm not above it, uh, and I, but I am a messenger of it this afternoon. So thank you for this privilege, and thank you so much for all the sermons that have been preached in this space, and it's changed so many people since then. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So my massage therapist, I don't know if you go to an RMT regularly, I don't really, just once in a while. I should go more often. My husband's benefits allows me to do that. Um, but my RMT or massage therapist would always ask me after every session, how do you usually sit or stand? And so naturally, I would sit or stand in the most unnatural way possible. It's like, I don't know, like I just, I sit. Like I sit like this or I stand like this. And, but the reason they would ask me that is, is because it's evident from their treatment um, that I have very poor posture. And it would be the same way with the way that I run. Um, I do run. And when I do, I just feel exhausted. I feel exhausted. And I said, there must be tips out there on how to run better so that I can conserve my energy and enhance my speed. And there are. Uh, none of which I've actually heated or applied to my running. But lesson learned, form and posture seem to matter with the activities we do with our body, like running and walking. And as we start a new chapter in Ephesians today, Paul continues to use this word walk. Let's walk our lives in this way, with a series of therefores after chapter three, which means that in view of the new reality in Jesus, 
parsed out for us in chapters one to three. We as the new society or the new people of God are to walk in a certain posture or to walk in a certain way. And to walk, as we know, is synonymous with the words to live in Paul's usage of this word. But not just to walk without thinking about our posture, but to walk just as Christ did. It says in our very simple uh, passage today in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just two verses today at the beginning of chapter 5, and that's it. But our posture matters in how we walk. How we live matters. And Reese last week did such an excellent job parsing out what our posture should look like as we put off the old self and put on the new one in Christ. And while everyone walks or lives their life, good posture and form is not incidental. It doesn't just happen simply because you walk. The passage tells us that it must be intentional. And we are to intentionally walk in the way of love just as Christ did. And today, the invitation is to check our form. To check our form in the way that we walk or live our lives. And I want to ask these three questions of the passage that will help us wrap our minds around that. Number one, how do you see God for who he is, is the first question. The second question is, what about God are we called to imitate? And finally, how then can we imitate him or begin to imitate God? Now, the first question. How do you see God for who he is? And this is an important question because we need to know what we're imitating. We need to know the image, picture, person that we are imitating. And when we take a step outside and see the sky, whenever we can see it in Vancouver, we see birds flying in the air or we see the trees that hold them up, or perhaps it's that perfect cotton candy sunset. Scripture says that when we see that, we see God as well. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The psalmist writes that the skies fill us with wonder in their wordless speech. They're all pointing us to God himself. And as one commentator notes, nature is like a bubbling stream that bursts with new revelation for all those who might be still enough to listen. And then... Etched on a pair of tablets would be God's specific revelation about who he is, and he gives this to Moses and the Israelites through the Ten Commandments. They show us who God is. The commandments tell us not to lie, therefore it tells us that our God doesn't lie. And when the commandments tell us not to steal, it tells us that God doesn't steal. And when the commandments tell us not to commit adultery, it tells us that God is not unfaithful to his bride. And if God created us, the commandments also tell us what we're hardwired for. We're hardwired for Sabbath, for rest. It's perhaps the longest commandment that you'll find in the Ten Commandments. We're hardwired for honoring our parents. We're hardwired for having no other God other than the living God. And to violate these commandments is to violate our very humanness and to turn away or reject the relationship with our Redeemer. Finally, 
We know God in his very incarnation in Jesus. Jesus said so himself in John 12, 45. He says that the one who looks at me is seeing the one who has sent me. And Jesus also says in John 5, 19, he can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So when whatever we see Jesus doing in the gospels, as he relates to children, to men, to women, to the rich and poor, to the elite and religious, we're also seeing God at work. God, so to speak, puts our skin on and moves into the neighborhood. That's what we see in Jesus. So we are to see God in those three ways, but most clearly and specifically in Christ. That's how we see God. Now, the second question, what about God are we called to imitate? And to be honest, this is a very intimidating thought. It's also the main exhortation of the passage. It's to follow God's examples, which means to imitate him. And in my heart, I go, really? Like, I'm supposed to imitate an infinitely good and purely divine God of the universe in this finite body of mine? I can't even run right. My posture is so bad. However, we, can't, we cannot escape or sidestep this call either. It's all over scripture. It says in Leviticus 19, 1-2, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then Jesus echoes this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48, when he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Daryl Johnson sums it up well. He says, God tells us that because I am, you also be. Because I've done, you shall also do. Again, this seems like a tall order. In fact, it may feel altogether impossible and crushing. Now, in my first week, I don't know if you remember your first week of your full-time job, the one after university. Um, I was like in complete shambles. I was so anxious, you know, and, 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 and I got the job and I interviewed really well. I don't know if there's any one of you who just thinks that their skill set is to interview really well. Like, I can be confident for one hour. I can be charismatic and winsome for one hour, no problem. But when I got to the actual job and I, I went, I don't know. I don't know if I can actually do this. I don't know if I can do that nine to five. And one of the first things I learned how to do was this age-old advice. I'm sure you know it. Fake it until you make it. Might just be a millennial thing, I don't know. But here's the thing with that method. There's always some part of us that is afraid that will be discovered as a fake or a fraud. And there's a term they made for this, imposter syndrome. And I go, ah, that's what I have. I have imposter syndrome. And the only way to drive away that fear is to keep performing, not just to perform, perform well. Perform really well. And so in my heart, when I read something like this, when I receive this from scripture, I go, is that what God is really saying? Is that what he's asking of me? Be perfect as he is perfect? Because the only way I can do that is to have imposter syndrome and to keep performing well so that I can seem like I'm perfect just as he is. But Paul does not call us to imitate God's divine characteristics. We cannot, in fact, imitate God's power to create the world out of nothing. We can't do that. We cannot imitate God's act of breaking oppression. 
we can certainly join in, but just like he plucked the Israelites out of Egypt, only he can break chains of oppression and systems of oppression that exist today. We are also not called to imitate, to imitate the perfect God of the law. It turns our hearts downright pharisaical. Paul writes in a different letter to the Galatians 2.16, it says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have to put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's clear that the law is not the means through which we are saved or redeemed, but we are saved by the one who actually fulfills the law to its perfection and letter. Now I wanna go back to the 10 commandments because I think this is key. If you look, really it's not even at the beginning, it's a part of the 10 commandments that we often miss. Before the 10 commandments were listed, this is what this is what God says to Moses in Exodus 20, verse two. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Before the commandments were listed, God establishes a relationship. He says, I've rescued you, I've redeemed you, I've freed you from bondage. That's who you are. You're mine, you're my people. The law doesn't tell us how to redeem ourselves before God, but how to live our lives in relationship to that God, in a relationship that he establishes first. Perfectionism, on the other hand, will only lead you, lead all of us, into a cycle of despair, and will always lead us to doubt God's love for us. Because we start to believe that he only loves part of us that actually performs well. The parts of us that follow the rules, right? But there's a small but growing part of us that says, I don't know if I can actually keep this up. However, the Ten Commandments tells us we are first loved by God, redeemed by him, before he tells us how to live our lives in relationship to him. Does that make sense? And so may I lovingly suggest that we can lay down our pretenses, be honest with God, and know that when we come to God, we come to a father, not to an employer. The verse says to imitate God as dearly loved children, not as dearly loved workers, not as dearly loved leaders, not as dearly loved ministers, but above and beyond all of that, you are children of God. The gospel is first and foremost good news about what's been done for us out of love, not what we need to do for God to love us. If that's the case, if that's not what we're imitating here, what about God are we called to imitate? And Paul tells us, Paul tells us we're to imitate by walking in the way of love just as Christ gave himself up for us. And Jesus, as we know, this perfect incarnation of who God is fulfills the law and he sums it up like this. In Matthew 22, 37 to 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the law moves towards walking in love. As Daryl Johnson powerfully notes, what Paul seems to be doing on the other side of Ephesians 5 verse 1 to 2 is a reworking of the Ten Commandments. That is summed up with the exhortation to walk in love the way Christ did. That's how we fulfill the law. To give ourselves away, to walk in love just like Jesus did. And Jesus loves like this in John 10, 14 to 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So no one takes Jesus' life, but he freely gives it away. He gives out of joy, not of compulsion. No one puts a gun to Jesus' head and forces him to do this. He is freely moved by love. Now, I had this conversation with a girl at a cafe, just actually right here in Mount Pleasant, as I was doing my work and, and also talking to my friend who was there. She overheard us talking about church and, and Jesus, and she was a Christian growing up, um, and she you know, really struggled with uh, the, the, the really like, authoritarian, like heavily uh, law-based sort of um, upbringing she had. And, and recently, she's around my age, she's recently started thinking about going, coming to church again. There's a small tugs at her heart. Maybe I need to go back. And she had wondered with us out loud why Jesus would volunteer to give his life away. It just didn't make sense to her up to now. Why would he volunteer to die such a violent de death for people who are largely ungrateful or are wanting of it? It just didn't add up. And I really understand her question. I, I often really wonder at myself. Like every time I try to weigh like what's happening in my life or in the world and, and just like the degree of like postmodern belief that we face in, in our cultural moment and go like, why would you die for such a people, God? I don't, I don't understand. And then I considered, or I went back again to Philippians 2, 5 to 11, where it reads, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And though we can talk about this passage for hours, it is a beautiful hymn written in the early church. The one word I would want you to focus on is servant. <coughs> servant. That is the form that Jesus took, and he never looked back. God in Jesus put our skin on to stoop down and wash his disciples' feet. And if Jesus, think about this, and if Jesus is only doing what he sees his father doing, it means that the father is also a servant. 
If Jesus is God's heart put on display, then at the very heart of who God is, is a servant. Jesus shows us that to be God is to be a servant. And that is why Jesus emptied himself, washes our feet, and hung on the cross for our sin, because our God is a servant. I want that to sit in our imaginations for a moment. I want that to let transform our images and pictures and ideas of who God is. <coughs> God is not asking us to come up by his own standards, by our own means. He knows we cannot live by the law. So he comes down as a servant in Jesus to serve us so that we may have a relationship with him. It's beautiful. It's profound. I want to tell you that I get it, but that kind of love you just have to enjoy and revel in. Sometimes I don't get it. Which means to imitate God is to become a servant. That is the posture we are to take in our walk of love. And love is not fluffy feelings or mere sentimentality. But love is an action. Love takes on the form of a servant. Now on to our last question. <clears throat> How can I imitate God? And honestly, the most practical application is to begin serving, right? And it's very true. We talked about how the body functions well and grows in love when the whole body is being equipped and released for ministry. And it's not just the job of the pastor in the pulpit, but every person is a minister. That's what Paul writes beautifully in Ephesians. And there are many needs. There's some of us here who are eager and efficient doers, and we need people like you. But I would also be missing a very crucial part of my job if I'm not equipping us in how well and how to serve well. And to serve well is to love well. And to love well is to learn how to dwell in the person of love, and that is none other than, than Jesus. Now my daughter is three, you saw her, she's so cute, she came up with me to do prayer. And I find it super fascinating the kind of imaginative play, she's so into imaginative play right now, that she conducts during bath time. And she's got toys in there, and sometimes I listen just outside the door. And there's some episodes of her just like, <coughs> like disciplining her, her toys, like for ill-advised, I don't know what they're doing. It's just ill-advised behavior, right, during bath time. And I promise you, I would hear verbatim the words that I would tell her when I discipline her, when she chooses not to listen to me. It's freaky, verbatim. And then she also plays this game called Mommy Marae. Again, I'm fascinated by this. And she does the exact bedtime routine she does every night, but with her dolls or her toys. Um, again, it's humbling. And it's a good reminder that my daughter is a sponge. For better or worse, she soaks up all that we do and say, and then mimics it to the people around her, usually the ones closest to her, 
like her toys and her dolls and her friends. And it makes sense. She spends a lot of time with me, a lot of time with AJ and I. So to learn how to serve is really important. There are courses, trainings, and books and frameworks that will help us with that. Tons of that. But the heart of a servant is not something to be learned from books. But it's learned relationally. We must first and foremost learn <coughs> how to be with Jesus. And Jesus is just like any other person in your life. He is known through and by relationship. It's actually our primary language. And it is the language of prayer. It's not just requests for desirable outcomes, but the way through which we're able to know who God is, is through prayer. And the question seems to be, do we know how to be with God? Do we know how to spend time in his presence? Do we know how to know him in the ways of prayer? And I do think, and maybe this is just for me and, and my generation, <coughs> I think we know how to do things for God. There's a lot of things we know how to do for him. And I remember it, and I don't know if you recall this, if you grew up in the 90s, there's this, the height of the popular phrase, WWJD. Do you remember that? Yeah, don't, don't leave me hanging. I know there's some people here who know that phrase really well. And there's people like me who would wear these like cross-stitch acronyms, like across their wrists, like the bracelets, and it would say WWJD. And it stands for, what would Jesus do? There's even songs about it. And uh, <coughs> it's intended to remind us that any given moment or interaction, we're supposed to ask, what would Jesus do in this moment? And if you didn't know, it was popularized by someone called Janie Tinkleberg to help her youth or her students remember this phrase and to embody this kind of practice. And eventually it would spread all over North America. But it was commonly... Um, it was actually, sorry, originated by someone named Charles Sheldon even further back who wrote a book called In His Steps. And this is based on a series of sermons he grounded or was grounded in the ideas of the social gospel movement at the time. It was intended to move people into action to their neighborhoods around them with Jesus as their main moral example and savior. Again, very good intentions. And the social gospel movement has achieved many things as a result of such a posture. And while this may have been an effective posture in the, the past, following it today may be quite hard as we're more removed from it. Because one, I don't actually know what Jesus would do at any given moment. You know? If someone was to came up, like, come up to him, or come up to him today, and like say, like, you know, some, I don't know, just say something. I was like, if I had to stop in my head and like, what would Jesus do in this moment? I, uh, like, do I not react if I don't know? You know what I mean? Like, it's just not a practical thing. I actually don't know what Jesus would do at any given moment, at any given point in my life. There's no flow chart for that. And then two, and usually a really sobering thing that I realize, I can do things for Jesus, yet never know him. I can do many things for Jesus, but never actually know who he is. I can know his agenda, I can know his mission, but it doesn't mean that I know Jesus. But if we were to take a look at how Jesus served people, it's interesting. It was always personal and never removed from any situation. Before Jesus raised Lazarus, he shed tears. Jesus felt compassion over the crowds before he fed thousands of them. 
Jesus wept over Jerusalem before he goes to the cross. Jesus cared for people deeply. The kind of care that moved him inwardly from his guts. He cried out with those who are in pain. <coughs> and Jesus' miracles and saving acts were never removed from any kind of emotion. They were, they were filled with it. He didn't save sinners from afar, but he stood beside them and wept. I remember reading this article of a pastor reflecting on burnout. And I'm sure we've experienced this even in our workplaces, even if you're not a pastor. And he was wondering out loud, how did he come to such a place? Like, wasn't he doing what he was supposed to be doing, which is to, to do and care whatever Jesus did for the people, right? Wasn't he doing what Jesus did? And with the wisdom and guidance from objective perspectives and loving people around him, he was finally able to see why. You see, when people come to him with their problems and their pain, he felt such anxiety over what they were feeling. And he wanted to remove that anxiety right away. And so he would jump to give them the solutions. Here's how you can deal with this problem. And which worked? It worked. It worked because people would leave his office with something to try, but then they'd come again, right? Now there's a revolving door of people coming with their problems and his anxiety rising, and then the solution just have to come so the anxiety goes down. And this contributed to his burnout. <clears throat> What he realized was, he was caring from a place of severe anxiety, rather than a place that is centered on the freedom of love in Christ. And so the question for me and for all of us, because this is not just an issue of pastoring, it's an issue of parenting, it's not just an issue of parenting, it's an issue of friendship. It's not just an issue of friendship, it's an, it's an issue of every single person that considers himself a minister in the church, and that's all of us. How do you maintain this level of care? Because our anxieties, our past hurts, our need for control could be forming our care for others more than Jesus is. And that's a real warning in my heart. While we want to see change in people's lives and cure for, for their illnesses, cure without care can spiral into control, to manipulation, to losing yourselves in those relationships. And it prevents any real community from ever forming. You see, to care for people to enter into their pain, to stand with them in their suffering, and while solutions are infinitely important, they should not be primary. And that might be game-changing, paradigm-shifting for us. But the question remains, how did Jesus, if we were to follow him, maintain this level of care for people? We also find the answers in the Gospels, thankfully. In Mark 1.35, <coughs> it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Over and over again, we see in scripture that Jesus withdrew somewhere isolated to pray. He knew his father's business because he was with his father constantly. It wasn't just imputed in his brain and accessed it like a flowchart. Whenever he got lost, 
You know, in a game, you can just access like a map. And you go, oh, this is where I am. Like that's not where Jesus. That's not what Jesus was doing. If anything, he modeled for us that we are to know God through relationship, which is through prayer. And this practice of removing oneself from the crowd and the noise to be alone with God is the ancient practice of solitude and silence. And if we really want to do what Jesus did, this would be a really important piece of it. Really important piece. And it might be a completely new idea, like I said, or a practice you might already be doing. But allow me to introduce this in a practical way for us to engage in this practice. I also want to know there's many ways to do this, the one that fits your personality, schedule, and way of life. It's, it's often called the daily office, or morning, noon, and night prayer. But there's essentially four main elements, and we have a slide up there. One is stopping. Stopping in the beginning of our day, in the middle and at the end. It teaches us an unhurried spirituality that trusts that God is on the throne even as we stop working whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, or 30. And then the second element is centering. It's being attentive and open, which means being still, standing still, sitting still, breathing slowly, asking God to fill us again, refill us with the Holy Spirit. Three is silence. Turn down the noise, turn off the screens, go to a place where it's as close to absolute silence as possible. For me, sometimes when I'm working, I'm out of office, it's the washroom. It just, it just is. And then lastly, it's scripture. Meditate on scripture. Take a verse or two from any passage in the Bible, usually the Psalms, and allow it to lead you back to Jesus. Again, it can be however long you wanna start out in. I suggest, if you've never done it before, probably five to 10 minutes. But the important thing is to start and learn to be with Jesus. You see, Jesus lived out of this quiet center of his being within his father's presence. And then he went back out there to care for people when he left it. It may honestly be easier to do things of a servant, but to have a servant's heart, we must be living within Jesus' very own. Consider what Henry Nouwen said. He says that it is in solitude that we discover that being is more important than having, and that we are worth more than the result of our efforts. In solitude, we discover that our life is not a possession to be defended, but a gift to be shared. It is where we recognize the healing words we speak are not just our own, but are given to us that the love we can express is a part of a greater love. God imparts something to us in solitude that he does not otherwise do in other parts of our day. And that greater love is the yoke that Jesus offers to us again and again. It is the yoke he has worn his whole life. And he invites those who might listen. In Matthew 28, sorry, 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To walk in love is to follow the way of Jesus by giving yourself away to others. But to do that, we must not forget that we must also give ourselves over to Jesus again and again. And when we give ourselves over to Jesus, we do the most essential thing in our discipleship, the most essential thing. And that's to come to him over and over. When we come to Jesus, he will rest us. A deep rest that allows us to stop working, knowing that everything is in his hands. When we come to Jesus, he gives us our identity, one that isn't shaped by others' opinions or your achievements. And so when we come to Jesus, he, he binds up our wounds, he forgives us of our sins, and by his wounds, we are healed. And by sharing our wounds with others, that healing is shared. That's how we walk in love. When we come to Jesus, we are reformed into a people, reshaped into his love, that can give ourselves away to others. But the most essential verb of discipleship is to come. I want to invite Sharon up, and I want to invite us into prayer. Um, as you know, <clears throat> we love responding by prayer and worship when the word of God is preached, assuming that he is doing the work in our hearts and in our lives. And we do have a prayer team of Travis and I uh, that's here to stand with you in your prayer, in your needs at this time, and in this navigating this idea of, of living in the heart of Jesus as our primary framework for caring for people. And I get it, some of us are burdened here with deep care. Some of us are burdened with caring for family members, for friends. And we just wanna say that as a team and as a church, we wanna carry that burden with you. That burden is shared when we pray for one another. And so that's the invitation towards prayer ministry today. And um, we'll also respond by singing. But if, if that is something that, that you're walking in, which I assume all of us are, we would love to stand with you in prayer. But let me pray for us, heading into response. Um, Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your living presence, your breath in our lungs, <coughs> your love, Lord, coursing through our veins. And we just want to say sorry for wandering so far away from your heart, when your deepest desire, Lord, for us is to come to you so that you can rest us, remind us who we are, and to, and to be about your business again. But your business, God, is not just about doing. It's about learning how to be with you and living and walking our lives in the, in the quiet center of your will, of your heart. And we pray, God, no matter how far we've come away from that, we come back to you. And the glorious truth of the gospel is that we're more loved and forgiven than we ever dared imagine. So to come back is so simple. 
And so we want to say we come back to you, Jesus. We come back to your loving presence. We come back towards your kindness. We come back, Lord, not just to our employer, but someone who deeply cares for us, who's committed to our well-being, who's committed, Lord, to and knows every bit, Lord, of our of our wounds and, and our heartbreak and, and just the weight, Lord, that we carry. And we want to exchange burdens with you, God. We confess that we've worn the wrong yoke. We want to confess that we've worn the yoke, Lord, of just trying to do things for you, for others. We confess that sometimes our love and care for others comes out of our own selfishness and our anxieties about who we are and the wounds, Lord, that we have left unaddressed. We come to you. We ask you to rest us. (coughs) We ask you to heal us. We want to wear the right yoke the yoke that will lead, Lord, to more, a deeper sense of care for people. A care, Lord, out of your own heart. Because we know we can't do this by ourselves. We want to stay close to you. So we want to put on your yoke, which is so light, a non-yoke. And that is your relationship with the Father. The Father says, you are my dearly loved children. You are my dearly loved children. I will always, I will always take you back. Pour grace and mercy over you. And then ask you again to be sent out to love those around you. Imitate this love to those around you. Thank you, God, for you have loved us like this. And you continue to do that for us again and again. We're so grateful. As your church and as your children, we're so grateful that this is what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen.